Hello and welcome to the podcast Ethics and Etiquette, a thought-provoking discussion about everyday dilemmas. I'm your host, Marna Ashburn, here with wife, mother, and attorney Kelly Halligan-Zimmerman. Hello, Marna. Hi, Mike. And Mike Derrick, a retired Army officer and combat vet. Hey, good morning, everybody. Our goal here is to offer you insights and perspectives on sticky situations that will help you scrutinize your choices and exercise your own ethical muscles. On today's show, we're going to talk about the many situations we're faced with when we travel, whether it's by plane, train, or automobile, when we're moving from place to place with a large crowd. There is bound to be a few contentious moments. The terms runway rage and road rage didn't get started for nothing. Let's get started with our first dilemma. I was in an aisle seat on a plane when the last passengers, a couple, boarded the plane. They were late harried and breathless. The wife sat next to me in the middle seat and her husband was in the row ahead in the middle seat. She then turned to me and asked if I would switch seats with her husband and sit in the middle seat because she was afraid of flying and needed to sit next to him. By the way, I was in the aisle seat. This couple was both in their late 40s and the flight was pretty long. It was about three hours long. Are you required to give up your seat to accommodate another traveler? When would you do it? If you don't want to give up your seat, how do you handle it? Kelly, let's start with you first. Well, absolutely not. I'm not giving up my aisle seat. Uh, No way. (laughs) I mean, particularly since they could have planned in advance and purchased seats next to each other. Uh, I generally, when I fly, purchase a seat. I choose the seat. I like an aisle seat. I'm more comfortable. I'm a little claustrophobic. Um, So... I'm not going to give up my seat. I will politely, you know, let the person know, no, I'm sorry. Um, I like to sit on the aisle. And in fact, I purchased this seat um, or I paid extra for this seat. On flights that have like an open seating policy, such as Southwest, uh, the couple could have been responsible. They could have checked in right 24 hours in advance to ensure that they could get a nice seat. um, Or they could have paid extra for an early bird check-in. It seems to me that they're just not very responsible and they're used to people accommodating them. I wouldn't do that for them. Uh, As far as your question, when would I do it? Rarely. I think in a situation where there was a child um, that needed to sit next to a responsible adult uh, or a relative um, or someone elderly, I would consider it. But with the way we fly today, where you can, you know, pay for a seat in advance and, you know, make sure that you're next to each other... um, I just think you're picking up the slack for somebody else's error, and I don't think you need to do that. Mike, what do you think? Well, Kelly, you took a pretty tough line on that. I tell you, I agree with a lot of what you said, but I think there are some exceptions, and you brought up one of them. That's with a child. I mean, we've seen it all the time, and Lord knows we've all been parents. Sometimes you just can't get organized enough to manage getting the right seats, or you're too late, or the trip was last minute. So... You know, again, it depends. I tend to defer to parents with children. I also tend to defer to older people who sometimes find themselves in in just a really tough situation. And, you know, they should be on an aisle by all rights, but somehow they got stuck in a middle uh, or a window. And, um, you know, if they they ask to move, um, you know, I certainly would consider it. I tell you, though, that 
you know, lately I've, I've been having some back issues. And so for me, it's the, the whole idea of sitting in the same seat for three or four hours is already intimidating. And so being in the aisle has become on a couple recent flights, something which I just don't really have a choice. I have to be there if I'm going to make it. So I think we have to, you know, you, you got to look at your own circumstances. It's, it's interesting the way, if you look at air travel over the last 30, 40 years, how we have been reduced to an even smaller and smaller footprint within these airplanes. Um, I can remember flying to Europe in yeah, the 1970s. And, you know, my the, the planes were of such size. We were in coach. My whole family was in coach. It was with my parents. I was probably 9 or 10 and I could sleep on the floor beneath their feet, and they still had room for their feet. So that just gives you a sense of, of what's happened to air travel. We've become so tucked in and so squeezed into these very small spaces. I think it's the place where you find the greatest population density of anywhere in the world. It requires a little bit of grace and a little bit of sometimes you've got to give a little, but uh, so, so the, those are some random thoughts on air travel. Mm-hmm. I agree. I you know, I need to be in that aisle seat. In fact, I'm so claustrophobic. I had an incident once where I actually was subpoenaed to appear in court in Richmond um, regarding a client that I had represented in federal court. So I was required to be in court the next morning, and the federal government had made my reservation, you know, had covered getting me down um, from New Jersey to Richmond. And I got on the plane did not have an aisle seat. It was pouring. I, you know, was trying to relax. And anyways, the the crew member announced that they were getting ready to, to close the door. Was everyone on the right flight and everything? <laughs> I got up and I said, I'm not on the right flight <laughs> and got off the plane, which was just crazy. But I was that uncomfortable. Yeah. And I ended up calling my husband and he just laughed at me. And I had to get in the car and drive six hours to Richmond. Wow. Uh, so that I could make it to court and meet my obligation. That's how important an aisle seat is to me. Oh, I had okay. the same situation okay. once <laughs> when I, I was in the very back row with, uh, there was no window. It was the very back yep. row. I, and I'm a little claustrophobic myself. And I, I couldn't stay. I jumped, yeah, I jumped up and I said, can I take that seat? There are a few open seats. So I changed seats. Yeah, it's really difficult for some people, for sure. And you just have to plan in advance and get the seat you want. You know, the other thing I'd say is it's really tough for crew members. They have a tough job. And when you make a reservation on a plane, you enter into a contract of carriage with that airline. And you are subject to federal law. And, you know, the FAA requires um, that you comply with crew members' instruction. There's a number of things that you need to do with regard to safety and not interfering the performance of their job and their duties. So you do want to try to work with your neighbors because you don't want to put the crew member in a situation where they have to order somebody to take certain action because it's a tough job. But if they do, you have to comply with their instructions. And I would encourage folks to... You know, if they fly regularly on American or Southwest or whatever airline, go to their website, find the legal page, and read the contract of carriage because it's interesting and it covers 
your rights as a passenger, your duties, you know, liabilities of passengers and carriers with regard to fares and boarding and bags and delays and various issues. I didn't know that existed. I will go take a look at it. That's interesting, yeah. (laughs) Contract of carriage, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so... So, can I throw one more thing in, Marna? Sure. Kelly brought up the flight attendants, and I think in many cases the flight attendant can be your best advocate. If you're in a tough spot for whatever reason, and you go to them or you get their attention and in a, you know, in a responsible, respectful way, you say, hey, you know, I need your help here. Maybe you could help us solve this situation. Invariably, they, they will get involved and they'll try to make things right as best they can. And I want to tell a little story about that because we lived in Alaska back in the late 1990s, early 2000s. So flights from Alaska, if I remember right, tend to leave in the middle of the night. And so there I was, I had four children with me, and we get on our flight, and coming in late, just before the door closes, is this guy who's been hunting in the back country of Alaska for two weeks. He was not, he was very big. He was big to begin with, and then he, he was obese. He was not shaven, he was not washed, and he was totally drunk. So he'd spent all evening in the uh, hotel bar or in the airport bar lounge, whatever, and he'd really tied one on. And so he stumbles onto the plane and he kind of climbs over me and some of my kids and gets into a window seat and he's spilling over into the seat next to him and he then passes out. Oh, jeez. I didn't have to do much because the attendants were going, you know, this is their nightmare situation. And they couldn't wake him up. They couldn't get him to move. They couldn't get him to respond. So they, they took care of us. They, we got moved around in such a way that he had, you know, the window seat and a middle seat. And then we were in the aisle and somewhere else, you know, nearby in the plane. But again, those airline attendants on more than one occasion have really stepped up in my experience. And I just want to give them a shout out today because they can be your best friend on these, in these kind of situations. Well, that's a really good point, Mike. Go to them first. So did that drunk, passed-out guy go on the flight, finish the flight? He did. He did. Wow. He wasn't causing any trouble, but outwardly so. I mean, he just, he was absolutely, he stank like there was, I can't describe the smell coming off of him. Um, well, I mean, one of American Airlines, I just pulled up the contract of carriage for American Airlines. Yeah. And one of the items under passenger obligations complying with airline rules for safety is be respectful that your odor isn't offensive. <laughs> uh-huh. And then it says in parens, unless it's caused by a disability or illness. So so they can and they have removed people from flights because of offensive odors. It is an issue. It really can affect other passengers. Sure, yeah. And I have read about that occurring. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's just, it is a tough job to be an airline attendant. I mean, make no bones about it. It is It is difficult. But they do some amazing things. I've read recently about an airline attendant or a crew member who spotted a child with someone that they were uncomfortable with, and the crew member was alarmed. Anyways, it turned out to be a sex trafficking situation. And the crew member alerted the captain when the plane landed, the authorities came on the plane, and as the investigation occurred, it became clear what was going on, and 
this adult was transporting this child oh, for wow. those purposes. Yeah, I mean, and there are a number of instances like that. The crews are trained in a number of different mm-hmm. ways, which which I think is really so helpful and can really right. make a difference. Wow. Well, big shout out to that flight attendant. Yeah, that's great. Absolutely. Okay, so do you want to know what happened on my plane flight when I was asked to give up my aisle seat? Yes, we do. <laughs> I know you. I know. I know you said no, Marta. Well, in a nice way. I said no. I had just had knee surgery about a month earlier, and I said, "I wish I could help you, but I just had knee surgery, and I need to be able to extend my right leg, which I can only do here in the aisle seat." And so she said, oh, "Okay," but had I not had that script all ready to go. Like, if I were caught without a script, what would I have said? I probably would have stammered and, you know, I don't know. And I've since learned that people ask other passengers to change seats all the time. People who buy the cheap tickets on the cheapo tickets website where you don't get to pick your seat will ask other passengers to switch seats because you don't get to pick a seat. So it does happen a lot. And if you don't want to move, you do need to think about what... What's the polite, kind way to say no? And I asked my daughter what she would do, and she said, oh, I would just say no, and then I'd put my headphones on. <laughs> <laughs> and, that, and that's not a bad way to handle it at all. Yeah. Or just say, no, I'm sorry, I, I actually purchased this in advance and chose this right. seat. Yeah, I'm sorry, no. I don't think you're required. And I think we both agree, an unaccompanied child, perhaps. I would give, personally give up my seat to a young a couple traveling with young children who need to sit together and senior citizens who need to be in an aisle seat for comfort. But beyond that, I, I do think I would put my headphones on and say, no, no, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I, Cause I set my phone 24 hours in advance to check in. I make it a point to do that so I can pick a seat. Knee surgery if, or not, I, I pick a seat on the aisle. Yeah. And if it's important to you, pay for it. You, you can do that when you purchase your ticket. Yeah, you can pick a seat and pay extra. It can be twenty-five bucks. I mean, if you want to go, you know, into the exit row, you're going to pay fifty or seventy-five dollars in advance. Right. So the the woman who wanted to switch seats, she was getting more and more nervous. Finally, on our aisle, the lady who had the window seat, she said, "I'll switch seats with your husband." And so they switched seats, and everybody was happy. Wow. So, but I don't think you're ever required to give up your seat. Are you? I think I, I think I think you are if. If the crew member instructs you to, I mean, on occasion, a flight is overbooked and the crew members ask people, you know, eventually they ask people to exit the plane. They offer tickets, they offer different things. But if people will not, you know, they have to choose certain passengers and ask them to to leave the plane and you have to obey their instruction or their direction. Right. Right. And also, if you're seated in um, an emergency row and you're unable to accomplish the tasks during an emergency, then you'll have to switch. But I've heard of those bump uh, payouts getting really high these days. People just don't want to give up their seat for uh, extra tickets or whatever. And Mike, to your point about uh, packing in a lot of seats in the same plane, you're right. Can't remember the exact numbers, but I did hear the statistic of the same plane back in the 70s had X number of seats, and today it has quite a bit more. I was shocked at the increase in the number of seats in the same plane body from the 70s. It's it's remarkable. It's really remarkable. And by contrast, I have flown on these long charter flights from the East Coast to to Europe, which are run by the military. 
and they tend to get old airliners. You know, they're often flying aircraft you'd never seen in commercial service anymore other than charters. And the difference when you go in them is remarkable. There is just this sense of space because they haven't been upgraded. They haven't been re-engineered within the same fuselage to add whatever it is, 5 or 7% more passengers. So you get a little taste of how we used to fly? Right. I know when the person in front of me reclines, I feel like they're right in my lap now. The, nowadays on planes. <laughs> yeah, yeah and I mean... It's tough, especially if you're tall. Yeah, that's what you I was know, just going to say. I'm, I'm six feet tall. I think I'm right about at the limit where... You know, you can be comfortable, you can be reasonably comfortable in coach, i.e. your knees are not being pushed into the seat in front of you. But (laughs) people who are taller, they have no choice. They have to go find something else, you know, bulkhead seat, exit row seat, or they have to upgrade to a higher category of seat. My husband's 6'6", and flying is really difficult. And he flies a lot, so he generally pays for the exit row because it's really unbearable otherwise. And if I want to fly one of the smaller, less expensive, you know, like a Spirit or a Frontier, he can't do it. I'm tall, but even I'm uncomfortable on it. But I'm willing to do it, but I'm not 6'6". Yeah, right. He's just like, no. (laughs) I am not tall, and it's uncomfortable for me. So that just tells you how crammed in we are. (laughs) Yeah. All right, so moral of this story is get your script ready if you don't want to give up your seat because... Sooner or later, it's going to happen. Somebody's going to ask you to give up your comfy aisle seat. Right, and and also take responsibility for your actions or inactions if you're a flyer. If, if you don't plan in advance and you don't pay for that seat, then too bad. You shouldn't even ask anybody to switch with you. Well, especially if you bought your ticket off El Cheapo Tickets on the website that doesn't offer you a, a seat choice. Stick with us. We'll be right back with our second Ethical Dilemma. And we're back. This is Ethics and Etiquette, a thought-provoking dialogue about everyday dilemmas. We're on to our second ethical dilemma about travel. This one's also about airline travel. Can we discuss the size of carry-on bags these days? I know there are airline size restrictions, but from what I see, they're not enforced very closely. I see folks trying to game the system by bringing huge carry-on bags to the gate and trying to get them gate-checked for free. I was recently traveling, and I I had a bag which I thought was carry-on size, but my son said, that's too big. So I went and checked the airline carry-on size measurements and got out my tape measure and measured my bag, and it was very close. But ultimately, I decided, I can't remember if I decided not to use that bag or to check the bag. I don't know, but it was... It exceeded the airline size restrictions for carry-on bags. But on that particular flight, I started noticing the size of bags that people were carrying on, and and people were dragging bags the size of footlockers onto the airplane. So I thought, what is it with the size restrictions? It's not being enforced. Mike, what do you have to say about that? I would say, Marna, that I have seen a distinct change lately, and I think this ties into our previous conversation about the amount of space you get in an airplane. Everything's tighter. And so what I've noticed, and I would say in the last five years, is that starting at check-in, you know, the screening process begins and um, they're looking at the bag and they, they just 
they're going to make you my my experience is they're going to make you check it unless you can prove that it fits into that little frame that they have in the check-in area if it doesn't then you check it and of course now that incurs a, a cost so that makes a lot of people mad but i have seen that i guess one of my hang-ups is the people who have a bag that will certainly fit in the carry-on compartment but then they have like a personal item which turns into another carry-on bag let's say it's like a knapsack and then i hate to throw women under the bus here but i'm going to do it anyhow the purse okay how do you define a purse you know is a purse like sometimes purses turn into these enormous satchels so all of a sudden you have someone who has three big bags all of which meet the requirement for carry-on one carry-on bag one personal item and then a purse and uh, that begins to add up and i think that can cause trouble in these very cramped airplanes so the other thing i'd say is that the people are becoming more and more accustomed to gate checking and so that's a real great thing even if your bag does fit in the carry-on compartment if you gate check it that just makes everybody's life so much easier and I think that's part of the courtesy we all need to exercise when we travel is that, you know, even if your bag technically fits in that compartment above and it's big and heavy, even for just safety purposes, you should have it gate checked. So those are some thoughts there. I'm anxious to hear the response from the women on the purse. OK, <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, purses have gotten really large these days. They're like purse slash attache case. But um, <laughs> to your, so it's not to your, just me. It's not just you. <laughs> <laughs> no, you could carry a laptop in there. But my, my pet peeve is people who are not checking their bag, because it costs money to check a bag these days, except for on Southwest and maybe a couple other airlines. So they don't check their big bag. and They're just counting on it being gate-checked at the gate without having to pay the fee. And if they can't, then they have to bring an oversized bag on the plane. So have you guys noticed, are they being more restrictive about not gate checking things for free? Because I don't even really notice them vetting the bags at the gate, I'll tell you, with the kiosks that you do yourself. Yeah. Well, you know, we we live in a small town, I think, as I've said before, and our only flight to the rest of the world is a United flight. And so it flies to Dulles Airport in Washington. And they're very, very careful when we get on this flight here to make sure your bag fits. So that's kind of my portal to the world right now. So trips start with a pretty careful screening of the bags, you know, at least on United. I can't speak for other airlines because that's what I'm normally flying these days. Yeah, I mean, my experience is when I check a bag, they're weighing it to make sure it's not over the limit. And I have seen bags over the limit and they do charge for that. And then when I go to get on the plane, they do have, as, as you walk onto the plane, that some kind of device that is supposed to, you need to fit your bag in. And if you can't, you have to pay and gate check it. That, that's been my experience. But I don't really care. To tell you the truth, it's, it's kind of not my concern. It doesn't bother me. I feel like it's up to the airlines and... If the airline is going to let somebody take advantage of the system, that's on them, you know. And as far as the purses, I mean, Mike, there's there's men's purses, there's, there's man bags. <laughs> yes, there are. You're right, <laughs> and uh, they can be large. Or you got guys that carry on these backpacks that are yeah, like humongous. Yeah. So, right. but I try to not get caught up in things that 
that I can't control and that don't really impact me. It does make boarding a plane awfully slow when everybody's got carry-on luggage these days to avoid paying like the uh, checked bag fee. And the other thing that I think is kind of alarming is I've seen bags fall out on top of people's heads, fall out from the overhead containers. And if somebody's grabbing a bag above in the overhead container above me, I always duck under the overhang so it doesn't land on me. Well, you got to watch yourself. I mean, it can be crazy. Um, I find myself reaching up there and helping people because you know that there's some older people or young people and and they, you can just tell the bag's heavy and you just don't want to see that thing come crashing down. So I just want to throw in one additional thought, which is kind of, I guess, philosophical. But since the advent of fee for luggage, I have learned to travel with a whole lot less. And I typically carry on unless it's a very long trip. I just find it so much easier and simpler when I have a small bag that doesn't weigh a lot. And most of the stuff I used to bring with me, I really didn't need or I didn't really use. And I can get away with a lot less. And it just sort of makes life a whole lot nicer when you're carrying a a reasonable load as opposed to lugging things around, especially when you got a lot of legs on a trip. Maybe that would help everybody if we just kind of like unburdened ourselves. Travel lighter. Yeah, travel lighter. Have no clothes, no clean clothes. Oh, Travel light. You know. <laughs> I mean, Kelly, whatever works for you. Speak to your own. Let's go back know, to that unsavory odor. I'm not going to go that far. I'm, I'm saying just, you know, maybe. maybe just wear not, the same thing every day. Maybe, yeah, maybe not the eight uh-huh. dress shirts that, you know, you, you thought you right. needed for. Uh, for a 10-day trip. Maybe you can recycle a few. I find my, as I get older, my health aids and beauty kit is getting larger, (laughs) (laughs) not smaller. (laughs) Bring all those vitamins and health aids and things like that. We'll be right back with our third dilemma. Welcome back to Ethics and Etiquette. Here's our third dilemma on the theme of travel. On the bus or train, you see someone going through their mail and throwing a pile of litter on the floor. Or someone brings a to-go meal, one of those styrofoam containers, and a drink on the bus or train, then gets up and leaves all the trash on the floor or the seat. As a fellow traveler who notices this, do you say something? What do you do? Kelly? Okay, I don't do anything. I I really don't. Um, As we've talked about before... There's just a lot of unstable people. (laughs) There's a lot of crazy people out there. So I'm really not going to do anything. I might pick up the garbage myself or or take care of it myself. I'm not going to confront that person. I'm not going to say anything to them. I have to believe they know what they're doing. What I may do is I may say something um, to the bus driver because there are rules. For example, the subways in New York, the Metropolitan Transit Authority, can fine you if you litter or dump garbage, liquids or other matter. I ride SEPTA sometimes in my area, which is the Southeastern Transit Authority, Southeastern Pennsylvania Transit Authority, and they have transit police officers, and their job is really to provide a safe and clean travel environment. So you could certainly, you know, approach one of them and let someone know, um, because it's their job to enforce the state or city codes, really administrative positions 
folks aren't going to be charged with a crime, but they are going to receive sort of a ticket, an administrative ticket for, you know, littering or causing annoyance or different offenses. And, and folks can, again, as I talked about with the contract of carriage, you can go to the website of the bus service you're riding or of the subway that you're riding and look at the rules and regulations. Unfortunately, somebody that's going to do something like that probably isn't going to do this. But it's funny. I looked at SEPTA's website, and they have a passenger etiquette page. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which, which is really cute. It, it, like the saying is, dude, it's rude. <laughs> and uh, it was like, dude, it's rude, the volume. Take your trash. Watch your language. Two seats. Really? Question mark. So it's, it's cute. <laughs> we'll have to post that. Mike, what about you? Kind of with Kelly on this one. I spend most of my time, it seems like, I haven't taken a long-distance train in this country in a very long time. I have in Europe. Um, European trains tend to be pretty civilized. But most of the time I'm in a train or something like that, it's it's New York City subway or Washington, D.C. subway. And I am just amazed at how, over the years, they've really become much more pleasant environments. Now, they're often very crowded. You just can't avoid that. But there's a certain code of conduct, for the most part, on the the subway trains. And when it comes to music and it comes to, you know, speaking on your cell phone and those kinds of things, it's very, very rare that somebody somebody sort of violates the norms. And all the norms are very clearly posted in, I think, every single subway car. The one exception to that, and it happens mostly in Washington, D.C., are the panhandlers who work the cars. You know, that's a tough situation. And I just, I make a rule never to give them money because I don't want to encourage that behavior. But they will, you know, they're very, very aware of, you know, where the transit authority people are, and they they avoid them like the plague, obviously. But they'll work their way through a car and then hop off and that's been kind of the only breach of conduct that I've come across lately. So that's that's sort of where I am with the train thing. Yeah, and I think the same rules apply to buses. Like for SEPTA, SEPTA has trains and buses with the same rules. And I know the MTA in New York, if that panhandler was caught, you know, they could be charged with causing annoyance or, I guess, unauthorized commercial activity, <laughs> something like that, which are finable offenses. Now, I have often asked people to turn their music down. I find if you just approach someone calmly, no drama, no edge, just would you mind turning that down a little bit? They're happy to do it. or They may not be happy, but they do it without a problem. As far as the trash goes, one time the guy behind me brought in a styrofoam container of food which he ate, and then he put the garbage under under my seat. The smell of food just kind of nauseating. We had come to a train stop, and I turned to him and said, would you mind throwing that away while the train is stopped? And he said, it's at my feet. It's not bothering anyone. And I said, yes, but the smell is bothering me. So then he, he walked to the front of the car and threw it away, and it was fine. So my philosophy is just kindly asking people to remove the trash or sometimes I'll say, oops, you left your mail on the seat, even though I know it's trash. Excuse me, you left your mail on the seat. And sometimes they'll pick it up and sometimes they'll just shrug and walk on. Usually I'll pick it up and throw it away. I had a situation yeah. happen when we were in Germany visiting my daughter. We were on a, I think we were on a bus. And it was a bus that had 
two seats facing each other. There were three of us, so there was one empty seat. And my son was sitting there, and he put his foot on the empty seat, kind of propped his foot up. When I saw it happen, I, I thought, maybe I should say something to him and tell him not to do that, but I didn't. And a few minutes later, a German man came up to him and said, would you take your foot off the seat, please? Don't you agree that's rude? And <laughs> Stephen immediately took his foot off the seat and, and apologized. A little different situation in different countries. Yeah, I think the, you know, we, we talk about so many different scenarios in different parts of life. And I think you've got a great point, Marna, in that just speaking to someone can often solve the problem, diffuse the situation. You know, sometimes people are just in their own world and they're not even thinking. But even if they're doing it out of malice or out of, you know, sort of poor manners, you can often coach them into a better place. Right. But Kelly's brought it up a couple times. I think you have to pick and choose who you engage with because there's frankly some people you don't want to engage with. Yeah, and, you got to um, be careful. Yeah, you That's do. Definitely, I totally I definitely agree. think you got to be careful because right. there really are... And even somebody, when you don't expect it, you can say something nice, and then they're just like, F you. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah. And at that point, do you just leave it rather than let things Absolutely. escalate? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you do. Yes. You're in the presence of instability there. Right. And I think uh, I tend to be probably overly cautious because of what I've seen in court and people I've represented and civil cases I've seen where something innocent escalates into a, a horrible result. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. That's really sad. I've heard of that happening, too. Let's move on to our fourth dilemma here. What do you do when you're standing in a long line and someone comes up and blatantly cuts right in front of you and the others? Do you just let it go? Or if you choose not to let it go, what's what's a good script for this? Mike? Well, you know, again, you choose who you engage with. You kind of read the situation. Maybe there are some extenuating circumstances. But, you know, what I'll typically do is try to ask a question that sort of like would put the person on the defensive. Like, is there a reason you just cut in front of me? I've been waiting (laughs) in this line for 10 minutes. Wow. You would say that? That's really? pretty confrontational, Mike. Yeah. You know, that's I mean, like, that's again, like, I want to fight you. Again, it, you got to read the situation. You got to read the situation. And, you know, that can lead to some, I mean, I guess some interesting exchanges. But most people at that point, once they've kind of been called on it and they know they can't get away with it, I find one of the places where people lose their sense of courtesy and propriety is in the ski line. I don't know if you guys have this experience, but there are some people who just somehow seem entirely, think they're entirely entitled to 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 be very rude in ski lines. And if you're a, a decent skier and you're quick on your skis, you can, you can make it a bit of a challenge to them if they want to physically cut you off. I think, you know, somehow letting them know that that just isn't cool is is a good course of action. Again, with the caveat that, you know, there's certain people you probably don't want to tangle with. The Mike, other thing I Mike would say being too, one of them. What? Yeah, really? You're one of them? We don't want to no. tangle with you, Mike. You and Mike, you're one of them. I'm no, not going to in front of you. Know. Come on, Kelly. You could go right See. in front of me, Mike. Yeah, um, I'm not messing with you. But, you know, the other thing, too, that I have found that's, you know, you see somebody who's, like, visibly, something's, they're fired up about something. Maybe they're late. Maybe they're missing whatever there's an issue 
and you offer them you know you offer them to step in front of you you know you just kind of you know i'm not in a hurry i've got plenty of time you know this person looks pretty agitated it gets i'll have a story for you later maybe as we close you know random acts of kindness i'm a big believer in random acts of kindness and you can it does two things one it it may really help somebody out may make them feel good but then you know it also gives you a certain sense of satisfaction yeah kelly I agree with the first thing Mike said. The rest is kind of scary. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. Um, I would generally, if the person seemed pretty normal, politely say something and say, oh, you know, I'm not sure what you realize, but um, the line starts back there uh, or something like that. But it also depends on how the person appears and then what's going on with the line. Like, does it really matter? Like, if I'm in a line to get on the train, for example, and I've got a ticket, like, what difference does it make? I mean, it may not make a difference to me, in which case I'm not going to say anything. There's a seat for me. I'm going to get on the train. Whether I'm 10 people up or 10 people back doesn't make a difference. So I think I would, you know, situation by situation, I'm definitely not going to be quite as... um, forward as Mike as far as like what are you thinking (laughs) how dare you (laughs) I didn't say that Um, hold on (laughs) well you sort of (laughs) did but anyways and I I like the random act of kindness definitely I mean especially with somebody elderly I I try to or somebody with a disability um, or with a lot of kids or something absolutely I have at times been in a, a line around a counter random line queued up to be waited on and somebody who was there after me gets waited on first and when that happened to me once I just spoke up and I said excuse me I think I'm next the clerk apologized like crazy he said oh I thought you were with that other gentleman so that was one time I spoke up I agree with both of you that I'd read the situation decide is it worth it does it matter I might say excuse me there's a line here sometimes it's just coaching people on these conventions that we have like Kelly said, I don't think I'd try to take anybody on <laughs> at the ski line. <laughs> well, there's also the advantage of anonymity in a ski line, okay? Keep in mind, you have a helmet on, you have two <laughs> sticks, one in each hand, you have goggles, you know, you have a <laughs> jacket pulled up around your chin, which is kind of like a suit of armor. So, right. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Maybe that's what I was thinking. Yeah, everybody's brave behind the ski goggles, huh? <laughs> <laughs> we'll be right back with some end notes. Welcome back to Ethics and Etiquette and Notes. This is the part of our show where we like to leave you with something to think about for the coming week. I'll start with you, Mike. Thanks, Marna. Um, so I just want to give another pitch. You all heard me talk about random acts of kindness earlier. And I I tend to try to, you know, I just approach travel nowadays. I, of course, I'm, I'm a little more relaxed. I, I no longer am racing around the world in the military. But I try to do one or more uh, every time I travel because there was one incident where I received help where I, something I will never forget. And it was in, um, it was in the year 2001. And some of you may know I was a stay at home dad for five years. And my kids at that point were ages one, three, five, and seven. And we had flown from New York city and we were headed back to our home at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. And 
at about 11 at night, we landed at the Kansas City airport and I was flying with my four kids by myself. So that's already a challenge. And we were on summer vacation. So I had nine pieces of luggage, four children, nine pieces of luggage. And you know, that one was adult. like two, <laughs> Make one sure adult, you... two car seats and, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and you are brave. usually worked pretty well when the five and the seven year old were like playing along because they were pretty helpful. But it was 11 at night. They were tired. They were done. They weren't doing anything else. And somehow I got out of the airport and I, I literally have all this luggage stacked on the curb. I have four children who were in various stages of meltdown. The shuttle bus had stopped running to the, to the remote parking. And we'd been gone for weeks. So my car was somewhere out there in remote parking. And I'm just trying to figure out in my head how I'm going to pull this off. You know, and I was working towards, okay, let's get a taxi. I'll keep the kids with me. I'll stack the luggage on the sidewalk. And of course, this is pre-9-11, so you could do that kind of thing. I must have been looking pretty down down in the dumps. And this couple who had been on the plane with me and I guess had seen me because we were pretty conspicuous... Uh, by the way, I used to dress all the children in the same bright fluorescent yellow shirt so that we could <laughs> see them. <laughs> kind of like their travel uniform, you know, so I could right. like, pick them out of a crowd. Sounds so funny, she, but it makes good sense. Yeah, no, very practical. A uh, little little dorky, but very practical. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the, my situation, trying to figure out, knowing that I have another hour and a half drive to Fort Leavenworth, and this couple walks up and they said, can we help you? And I looked at them and it was, it was just a moment of being. And I said, here's the deal. My car's in long-term parking, shuttle bus isn't running, four kids, nine pieces of luggage, yada, yada, yada. And they said, we'll just take care of it. They went, got their car. They came back. Somehow we loaded luggage, children, went back into long-term parking, got my car. This guy helped me load it into my car. So I will never forget that. And somebody just was aware enough. They were sensitive enough to see that I was kind of in a pinch. And so I try to pay that back. You know, I try to pay that back whenever I go on travel. Because as we've talked about, travel is intense. Travel is tiring. Travel can be exciting. And travel can be really aggravating. So it it sort of heightens all the human emotions. Wow, that's a really beautiful story. It really is. Really is. I'm smiling. Yeah. How kind. How kind of that couple. Really. Yeah. 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 Super sweet. Yeah. Because I'm sure it's late. I'm sure they just wanted to go home. I'm sure they were tired. Right. Right. What about you, Kelly? I don't have a beautiful story like Mike. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Um, I would just say when it comes to travel, use common sense, be polite, remember your manners, and just exercise common courtesy. That's what it's all about. My niece works at uh, Universal Studios, and one of their philosophies that the employees have is the philosophy of shared accountability, how they are all responsible for guest experiences. And that includes things like picking up litter, even though technically it's not your job. Say if you run a ride, it's not your job to pick up litter. Everybody's you know kind of responsible for the general high level of maintenance and guest experience there. And I love that philosophy of shared accountability. We all can share in the accountability of helping one another, keeping the place clean, keeping it orderly, making things run 
smoothly in general. The concept of shared accountability. Definitely. That's great, Marna. That's great. Because I tell you, travel industry is causing us to share in a way which we have never shared before. That's and I'm true. Talking about space, you know, it, it is remarkable how they pack us in. So, space and crowds. Yeah. And also, I would say something else to take from this show is the concept of pick your battles. Right. Then that's all for this episode of Ethics and Etiquette. Thanks for listening. And remember, if you want to support what we're doing, please share, subscribe, and leave a review on Apple Podcast. Visit our website, www.ethicsandetiquette.com, for show notes and resources. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message on our website or leave a voicemail at area code 757-301-1327. For Kelly Halligan-Zimmerman and Mike Derrick, I'm Marna Ashburn, and this is Ethics and Etiquette, a thought-provoking dialogue about everyday dilemmas. Thanks for listening. Please join us again next week for an all-new episode. See you then.